So we're going to be in Luke 1, starting with verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and the ushers will come down and hand you one. We had um, announced that Jody Cross was going to be here this past Wednesday. Well, if you didn't make it and you logged onto the website and you clicked onto it, you might be surprised to hear my voice. I was actually surprised myself. I had an, an hour's notice, so don't hold it against me. But basically, his plane uh, got delayed in Toronto, and hour after hour after hour, and finally they turned it down or turned it around for uh, bad weather conditions. But the Lord knew what He was doing. Uh, that night we had a short message, and we had we had prayer. We just had corporate prayer. We can never um, overemphasize the importance of prayer. It was just a good, a good night, and it was orderly, and you know, it was just a sweet aroma to the Lord's nostrils. So everything we do, we need prayer. We need prayer for this church. Your needers lead prayer. Okay. Um, if there's ever a time to take notes, this is certainly the book to take notes in, the book of Luke. There's a lot of details. Even though we just started, I've been getting a lot of positive feedback. We're going to go through geography some of the old languages, customs, uh, ancient customs, and political and historical backgrounds. So it's a very fascinating book. And we also want to know why we believe what we believe. We don't have blind faith. God doesn't ask us to you know, blindfold ourselves and just walk around on a roof. He doesn't ask us to do that. Uh, we, we have that faith, but it's also established in a foundation. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a reason to anyone who asks for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That word reason is the Greek word apologia, where we get the word apologetics from, which is a study of why you believe what you believe in your faith. It's a substantiation. So we do have faith. There's things that are mysteries still, but there's also things that God sets out clearly that make sense. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start with verses 26 through 33. He says, And now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So you have a picture here. This same angel, Gabriel, if you've studied the book of Daniel, especially chapter 9, uh, the, the angel came down and, and basically gave Daniel, the prophet, the timetable for when the Messiah would arrive. At that time, it was the, the Persians were dominating the, uh, the known world, and it, pretty much there was a, a heavenly countdown. He gave him so many years before the Messiah would, would appear. So the Jews at this time were excited. There was a lot of excitement in the air. If you read any of the, the uh, Talmuds, uh, the rabbinical commentaries on the scriptures and the sign of the times, uh, extra-biblical works. The, the, the rabbis were very excited about this time because the Messiah was coming. Uh, this is the same angel Gabriel. As the, as the countdown is, is ticking, he, he starts to facilitate the ushering in of the Messiah. 
You saw it with Zacharias. You see it here with Mary. And then you'll see later he does it with Joseph. So do you ever wonder why angels aren't so much in the forefront of our society anymore? Well, Hebrews 13.2 tells us this, that be, be sure to remember to entertain strangers because some of them, some people by doing so have unwittingly entertained angels. So you never know when an angel's disguised as somebody and you help them and uh, it, it could be a, a real blessing. I remember one time there was a, a homeless man, Jamesburg, and, uh, you know, I, I helped the guy out and all. And uh, my wife and I, we brought some stuff to him. And I was like, the next day I didn't see him. And I expected to see him around. Uh, a few days went by, week, two weeks, and we're thinking, well, maybe this guy was an angel. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. Well, then I saw him two weeks later, and I had a discussion with him. And I came home, and I told my wife, I said, I, I saw him again. She goes, well, you think he was an angel? I said, no, I don't think so. She goes, why? I said, well, because he was using a lot of profanity. <laughs> it's true. But at least he wasn't a good angel, I'm sure. But... I think largely the reason why we don't see so much of, of that anymore, uh, the obvious, and then we'll see it again in the times of, of the book of Revelation, is because the Holy Spirit has kind of replaced those roles. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit teaches, he convicts, he convinces of sin, he comforts, he guides. The word, one of the words Jesus, is, Jesus uses is parakletos in the Greek, which means called alongside. He's called alongside of us to lift us up, to teach us, to be our conscience in a sense, to do all these things to help us through life. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, where believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells within, within us when we believe and, and uh, accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So a few things about the, uh, the times, geography. Galilee was akin to our counties, Somerset County, Middlesex County, and Nazareth was a town inside of Galilee. Uh, it was located on the, the north side of Israel, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And Nazareth, the root word for Nazareth, the Hebrew word is Netzer, which means branch. And Jeremiah 23.5 and Jeremiah 33.15 talk about messianic prophecies about where the, the branch would be used. I'm going to turn to one of those. Jeremiah 23.5 says this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So, the Jewish people were, were very well versed in the scriptures, and they knew all these things were starting to come together in their time period. But Galilee had its problems. Uh, there was a lot of intermarry of the Jewish people with pagan people. If you remember, 722 B.C., the Assyrians came down from the northeast, and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And they expatriated a lot of the citizens, sent them back to Assyria, and put their people in there. A lot of pagan customs were instituted, a lot of intermarriage, and it was like a watering down of the faith. So they were kind of looked down upon. Um, there was definitely prejudice there. In John 1, 45 through 46, when being told about the Messiah coming, uh, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So you see a prejudice towards those people in that area. We're the real Jews. We're the real spiritual people. They're not. But 
History tells us also that the Galileans spoke with a, a type of roll to their speech, a guttural sound, and it was obvious it came out. And you see that in Matthew 26, when Peter is trying to keep his distance from Jesus as he's being persecuted before his crucifixion. He's confronted three times about him being a follower of Christ, and he says, not me. The third time somebody said to him, you know, you're, you're a Galilean. I could tell your speech betrays you. There was something about the way they spoke that people could tell that they were from that area. And, of course, we know that he denied the Lord three times that very night. But all this sets the stage for Jesus' humble beginnings. Verse 27 now talks about betrothal, betrothal, betrothal. Uh, basically, this is a, a situation that's similar to our engagement, but more binding. The only way out of betrothal was death or divorce. Sexual intimacy was not permitted, and usually what happened was it was a period of one year that the two, you know, the husband and the wife, betrothed couple, would live apart for a year, and then after that year they would be married, and they would, be, you know, it would be a normal marriage. So that's what betrothal is. And you can see that we find out later that Joseph, when he finds out that Mary's pregnant, he's a good guy. He probably was hurt, no doubt. But he decided he was going to put her away secretly. He didn't want to make an example out of her. So probably he would have to go through the procedure of divorce. And obviously we find that Gabriel allays Joseph's concerns and everything's fine. But uh, continuing through, we see that Matthew uh, records Joseph's bloodline back to David and Luke records Mary's bloodline back to King David. These were very important. Isaiah 9-7, which we're going to touch on, is another messianic prophecy uh, that says that the Messiah has to come from the line of David. And in verse 28 through 30, we have the conversation between Gabriel and Mary. Now, like Zacharias, Mary had the good sense to be concerned uh, because of an angelic visit. We spoke before about what it could signify. It could mean death, could mean judgment. So she was concerned, and she had the good sense to be that way. And in Zacharias' case, also, Gabriel allays her concerns and gives her the good news about the miraculous birth. Why was Mary favored? Well, we see that not only did she come from an area that was looked down upon, but she was a young Jewish woman. And in that patriarch, patriarchal society, she would have had a low social standing. So everything about her didn't seem regal, didn't seem, well, how could the King Messiah come from her? So why was she highly favored? Well, the answer is so that God could get glory by using her. Why did he use Gideon or any of these people in the scripture? Gideon uh, was kind of like a spiritual chicken. <laughs> the angel says to Gideon, behold, mighty man of valor, and Gideon's like, I'm threshing the wheat in the wine press because I'm afraid. Who's the mighty man of valor? He's like probably looking around. But Gideon was used of God, and God got glory through using Gideon. Remember, Gideon's forces started with 32,000 men, and the Lord whittled them down to 300. What was the reason? Well, because as human beings, sometimes we could maybe try to take the credit. Uh, he wanted to make sure he made it clear to Gideon that when you win with only your three, 300 men, People are going to know that it wasn't because of you, it was because of me. So God wanted people to know that he was the reason why they were uh, victorious. So Gabriel says two times, he repeats to her that she's highly favored. Two extremes sometimes we can go to through in our, uh, in our lives. 
that we, we, we deal with and sometimes you go back and forth is pride and self-effacement. Sometimes we can be on opposite ends of the spectrum. When I think about pride, I think about that God doesn't use superstars. God is not, well, God uses superstars, but he's not looking for superstars. And if somebody is really impressive, God usually has to take them down a few pegs to be able to use them. But Paul wrote half the New Testament. He started out as a Pharisee, a great teacher, very learned in the scriptures. And the Lord had to have him to be humbled and brought down before he could use him mightily. And you see Paul's humility come out in his writings. I just want to read a paper. Um, somebody sent me an email about the person that God uses. It's very interesting. I mean, it's an oversimplification, but it's kind of, you get the point. The person that God uses. Noah got drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran from God and was suicidal and was grumpy. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer, and Lazarus was dead. <laughs> so that, there you go. If, if he can use them, he can use any of the, us. Okay. Uh, and then the other end of the, the spectrum is self-effacement. I see people put themselves down when they have their perception of what Christianity is and the man or woman that God uses. Why would God use me? I'm a nobody. Um, if you feel you're unqualified to serve God, you're right. I feel I'm unqualified to serve God, and I'm right. But that's the person that God can use. Remember, I can do all three things through Christ who strengthens me. And Second Chronicles 16.9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord go to and fro upon the face of the earth, seeing how he can show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. Who is he showing? Who is being shown strong? The person that he's looking for? No. It's to show himself strong. God is looking for people who are willing vessels that he could fill up with himself and use and get the glory. So God is looking for himself to be shown strong on behalf of, of a loyal heart of people who are loyal to God. When we read the scriptures, we have to really be, really look at the fine points of what it's saying there. And then verse 31, it has the name that the baby is going to be called. And behold, you will, be con you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Now, Jesus is an English word for the Greek Iesus, which is oh, a translation of the Hebrew Yehoshua, which means Yahweh is salvation or God is salvation. So you start to see all the titles, the branch of right righteousness, the Lord, our righteousness, um, God is salvation. And now we're going to get into Isaiah 9, and we're going to get into even more titles that Jesus is worthy to be called. Verse 32, he talks about, and he will be great, and he will be the son of the highest. Well, who is the son of the highest? Who is the highest? Well, first of all, obviously it's not Joseph, because he has really no part of this, except to be the father and the adopted father, you know, the father who's adopting him. Uh, but it's between, now the only person left is Mary. Is she the highest? No. 
That's a picture of God, who God is. So you see his deity coming through here. And Isaiah 9, 6 kind of gives, a, you get a little insight to who or what God would be called, what the Messiah would be called. It's a very good scripture here. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Messianic scripture, right here it's telling you that it's going to be a male child uh, and pretty much come through as, as a baby. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, verse 7 and here talks about the government being on his shoulder. And it talks about him continuing in the throne of David and ruling forever. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But when, when the prophets would speak, when God would speak through the prophets, remember, God is outside of time. We, we get this thing, we, everything has to be chronological. If, so, if you were doing something with history... Uh, and maybe World War II, what were the events that led up to it, how it happened? If you put a presentation where there was years, it was 1941, then it was 38, then it was 45, the end of the war, now we're back in the middle, it would be confusing to you because we're wired to understand things in a chronological fashion. Uh, so in, in this situation, when God would speak through his prophets, he wouldn't have everything necessarily in chronological order because God is outside of time. And when the fulfillment of time and we're in the last days comes up and God shows us all things, everything here will make sense. So the government being on his shoulders, second coming, hasn't happened yet. But it goes further and it says his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful, he is wonderful. Counselor, well, if you have the mind of God, you can counsel anybody about anything. You have all the answers. Mighty God. Now, again, you're looking into something here that we say, well, this Messiah at this time, he's more than just a guy. He's a mighty God. Well, how is that? How do you rectify that? The word for mighty God is El Gibor, the mighty God. And everlasting father, that's another uh, term for deity, prince of peace, Sar Shalom. It says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with just judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, God keeps his promises. It hasn't happened, the fulfillment of it yet, but God does keep his promises. Now, a few things about the terms that uh, he's worthy to be called. It's actually a Hebrew idiom when it says he is called. It really means that he is worthy to have these titles. So these titles are a picture of who he is. It's not like Jesus on his driver's license had all these names on it, you know. Basically, he was worthy to be called all these names. And somebody did a good job of making a, like a chart and speaking about all the names that God has in the Old Testament and how those names are Jesus' names in the New Testament. So you really, you, you can't not know that Jesus is, is divine, that he is God. You can't not know that. In other words... The creator is God's term. In Job 33.4 and Isaiah 40.28, God is the father, is the creator. Now, in the New Testament, John 1.3, Hebrews 1.10, and Colossians 1.15, Jesus is known as the creator. The first and the last. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 44.6, Isaiah 48.12, Isaiah 41.4. For the names of God, the first and the last for the name of Jesus, Revelation 1:17, 1, 
Revelation 2.8. I can go through all these. God is known as the rock. God is known as the great I am, the light, the judge. And in the New Testament, Jesus also has those names. Well, there's only a few conclusions we can come through with all that. Either, remember, God is very clear. If you read Isaiah chapters 43, roughly through 48, God says several times, I am the creator. There is none before me, nor there will be none after me. You know, I am the, he says, I'm the savior. There was none before me. There will be none after me. I am God. There will no, there's no gods before me, no gods after me. Now, Jesus comes on the scene. He starts taking these terms for himself. Well, he's either a thief or he really is who he says he is. So you have the situation where basically who in their right mind would take any of these terms as a human, as just a mere man? You, you might become comfortable with me here and I might over time be more relaxed up here. And I may come up here one day and say, listen, I got an announcement for everyone. I've changed my name. I'm no longer Joe DeProsimo. You can call me Mighty God. <laughs> Creator for short. Now, I would hope that somebody would remove me and take me for an evaluation and give me some of those pajamas with the really long sleeves that wrap around a few times because that's where I need to go. So you have a situation where Jesus is doing this and you either can accept him at what he says or you have to say in your mind he's crazy or he's a thief or he's blaspheming. So he kind of puts you in a position where you have no choice but to accept him as Lord and Savior, as God, and worship him, or, or not. You know, there's no in-between. Okay, verses 32 through 33, he, sp- he speaks about King David being uh, Jesus' ancestral father. King David was his father. He was to sit on the, on the throne of King David, but it wasn't like, you know, it was like an ancestral thing. Okay, so Psalm 89 35 through 37 and 2 Samuel 7:16 speak about the promise that the Messiah would sit on David's throne. So that's a promise. Now, again, these things about the Messiah coming, that's why a lot of the Jewish people, when they were waiting for the Messiah, they were waiting for this incredible person to come and smite the Romans and kind of, you know, stick their tongue out at the Romans. We got you, you know, take over Rome. We're going to usher in uh, God's kingdom by force. That's what they were looking for. And when it, when it didn't happen, they were, they were confused. They, uh, they couldn't accept it. They were looking at the scriptures that talked about as the Messiah coming as a lion. But they forgot about Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and all the scriptures where the Messiah had to suffer and die for the sins of the people. They were, it's like they just wanted to see what they wanted to see. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 1 that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jewish people. Trying to talk to somebody who is Jewish and they scratch their head and they're like, my Messiah hanging on a tree, just dying like that, a horrible death of a criminal, it just doesn't sit well with me. It was a stumbling block to them. As a matter of fact, again, you look at some of these writings of the ancient rabbis in the first century, Rabbi Rachman writing in the Babylonian Talmud, chapter 4, said, Woe to us! The scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. Woe to us! Now, they were trying to be gracious to God, and instead of holding God accountable for not keeping his promises, they were trying to look at it as we were so bad that he just didn't send his Messiah. But remember, God always keeps his promises. So you have a problem there with that type of theology. 
The scepter departing from Judah had to do with a prophecy made all the way back in Genesis 49.10, where it, it said basically that the scepter would, when the scepter departed from Judah, Shalom would come, the Messiah. So, um, and the scepter just had to do with the ability of the Jewish people to govern themselves. And all throughout the conquest, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, and the Romans, for the most part, they could, you know, business as usual. They would be like a vassal state to the conquering nation. But in this instance, in the first century, about the time that Jesus was coming, something changed. Uh, the Romans got fed up with them, in a sense, and took away their ability to govern themselves fully, which was the scepter departing. Now, the Jews would see that and say, Messiah's got to be here any minute, looking around, because the scepter has departed from us. Uh, so that's, that's what it's referring to. Verses 34 through 38. It says, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived the son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Biblical knowledge, she said, I do not know a man. Biblical knowledge was a reference to sexual relations. It started in Genesis, and it carries all the way through to the New Testament. So Mary didn't understand the dynamics of how this would take place. How can this be? You know, I know how babies are made, and it's not going to happen here. Uh, but isn't it just like human nature to want to know all the details? I think of curiosity and control. We want God to map out a plan for our life, don't we? We just, we just want God to just kind of show us everything. So, I, you know, I'll be obedient, Lord. Just kind of lay it out for me. You know, give me an itinerary for the next five years. Our flesh is resistant to being satisfied with just daily needs, our daily bread. I have a lot of questions for God. Obviously, in light of what happened recently, I'm thinking, okay, do I quit the force now? What if I start preaching really boring sermons and people leave? Now what do I do? Uh, you know, I've got all these questions. Is there a better man that should take this than me? And God just says to me, shh. Relax. I've got it under control. And sometimes we just need that from the Lord for just to hear, relax, I've got it taken care of. Instead of being like Martha and running around and scurrying around and worrying about everything, God just wants us to relax and sit at his feet. I saw somebody point to their wife over there. I won't say who it was. <laughs> so, in verse 35. Now, the angel kind of talks about how this is going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. So we have a situation here where maybe we don't quite understand exactly what's happening. Well, why don't we just take a look at, you know, you could be sitting in your living room and minding your own business, and somebody knocks at the door, and you open the door, and they say, Hi, we're Christians. We'd like to tell you about Jesus Christ. Everybody starts out that way. Let me tell you what, the, what Mormonism thinks of the virgin birth. I'll give you a quote by Apostle Bruce R. McConkie, Doctrinal New Testament Commentary 3.141. Now, if you understand Mormon theology, you understand that their uh, quotes from their apostles and, and prophets and presidents are actually held to a higher standard than the Bible. So when I read this, this is gospel to them. He says, begotten means begotten. 
It means Christ's mortal body was procreated by an eternal sire. It means God is the father of Christ after the manner of the flesh. Now, that's watered down. There's some quotes where he's, they're even more graphic about how Mary got pregnant. Okay? They're off, big time. If your understanding of who God is is off, it's going to show in your doctrine. It'll happen every time. You know, I even think of the, the 70 virgins who are waiting for the Muslim man who makes, makes Allah happy, and he goes into the eternal kingdom, and you, just, you have the 70 virgins waiting there. First of all, I ask the question right away, what's in it for the virgins? I mean, they all get to share 69 other girls with this guy. But Deuteronomy 17.17 17 says, do not multiply your wives. And people could say, well, men did it in the Bible. They did it all the time. But that didn't make it right. As a matter of fact, Solomon, who was one of the biggest offenders, it showed in his, his spiritual life. He was pulled this way and that and made altars for his wives and for different gods, and he really messed up his life. And when you read Ecclesiastes, it shows in what he's saying. But, and God tried to do away with slavery and the caste system in the Old Testament. Why would he revisit it in heaven? So when your understanding of who God is, the nature of God, is off, it's going to show up in your doctrine sooner or later. In Matthew 22, Jesus had a similar exchange with the religious leaders, the Sadducees, about another spiritual issue. And I'm going to read that in Matthew 22. Basically, there was a situation where the Sadducees, all the religious leaders came to test Jesus to see if he really was who he said he would be. And they had a situation where they talked about a woman who got married and the man dies. And she marries the next brother and then he dies. And she marries seven, you know, all these brothers up to the seventh brother and they all end up dying. And then she dies. So the Sadducees figured they, they really cornered Jesus. They had him in a, in a pinch. And they said to him, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Which of the, which of the seven brothers? And Jesus' answer to them was this. Now, remember, he's speaking to people who supposedly know the, the faith, the religious leaders. He says, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And the multitudes heard they, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus came from heaven, came down to earth to show us the way. If there's anybody I'm going to listen to about the heavenly kingdom, it's going to be him. What we, in our finite minds, why we try to reconcile things in the here and now, and we take that and we bring that up to what's going to happen in heaven. Everybody's got a picture of what heaven is going to be like. But our minds are limited. And the best person to take advice from is somebody who came from heaven to show us the way. Now that I danced around the fine points about what's happened in Mary's womb, um, what does the Bible say exactly about how that happened? The answer is I don't know. It's a mystery. It's something that, um, that we, we may never know exactly. Did he use her egg? Did he? I'm not even going to go into it because I might even be speaking something that's wrong without realizing it. But I don't know. But I can tell you what the Bible does say. When it says that the power of the highest, uh, that, that, that she will be overshadowed, the word for overshadowed in the Greek is epischiese. I hope I said that right. And it's a picture of uh, like a cloud coming up upon her and obscuring her. It's used in Matthew 17 in the Transfiguration. 
when Peter sees, he goes up to the mountain and Jesus has changed. His appearance has changed. He's transfigured. And he sees Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. And Peter doesn't know what to do. So he says, I'm just going to start making a tabernacle, one for the three of you. And God uses the same word. He overshadows and he says, be quiet, hear him, hear what Jesus has to say. Peter was overshadowed. He was obscured so that Jesus could have preeminence. Also, if in the Old Testament, remember, the temple was made with sin, sinful human hands. But God said that my presence, the Shekinah glory, my physical manifestation will, will uh, present itself into, the, into that holy of holies above the mercy seat. So God's perfect glory, God's perfect sinlessness actually dwelled in that temple. So it's the same type of word. Well, basically, in a nutshell, God obscured Peter. He obscured the temple and he obscured Mary in the sense that his power did an incredible miracle. And the focus was not on her anymore. It was on what was in her womb, the Christ, the son of God. And Romans 8.3 tells us that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Second Corinthians 5.21 says he knew no sin. He had no familiarity with sin from, from, from familiarity, but he became sin for us when he, when he hung on that cross. Does that kind of help you out? Verse 36, he says, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived the son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. So Jesus and John, they're six months apart. And um, do you realize that we would still be dead in our sins right now had it not been for two miracles performed on two women 2,000 years ago? You realize that? To, to, to do something so miraculous as to forgive us for our sins and do it in a way that it would be perfect and complete and that we would have fellowship with God for eternity. He did this incredible, incredible miracle. In verse 37, the angel says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Do you really believe that today as you're sitting here, that God can do anything? Nothing is impossible for God. If God can open the womb of an elderly woman and put God in the womb of a virgin, what can't God do? Now, some scoff at the virgin birth and say, well, you know, that's I don't believe that. It's not it's not feasible. And of course, uh, some translations of the Old Testament that are more current have kind of negated the, the part about the uh, virgin birth. Of course, that would help negate one of the miracles surrounding the Christ. But what did the writers of the Old Testament really believe, the ancient writers of the Old Testament? The Hebrew word for, uh, for the, the virgin who is going to conceive is Alma, A-L-M-A-H. And the Septuagint has a translation of Parthenos, where Alma is. For, and what that means is literally an unmarried virgin. So what is the Septuagint? Why are you bothering that with us this early in the morning, Joe? The Septuagint is basically a it's a third century B.C. translation of the entire Old Testament into Greek. If you understand the climate at the time, the, the Jews, the, you know, Israel was taken over by successive countries or successive empires. When the Greeks took over and everything, the dust settled and the Greeks r ruled the whole Mediterranean at the time, the Jews wrote a book. Seventy of them got together, scholars, religious leaders got together and wrote this book called the Septuagint. And they painstakingly translated all the, the Jewish Old Testament words all the way into Greek. So that, remember, the Greeks were pagans. They worshipped all these pagan gods. 
And we think that, well, it's just Christians that witness to people. God set the Jews up, if you look at a map of the Middle East, right in the center of everything, because he wanted them to show the, the pagan nations that there really was one true God. He wanted them, they were like the Old Testament Christians. They witnessed to people. So what, what he set it up was uh, these people translated this book so that the Greeks would, would be able to understand in their language who God really was. So 3rd century B.C., the book, it clearly says it's Parthenos is an unmarried virgin. Look it up in the Greek. So I have one of those at home. It's, it's a pretty neat book. Any, and it predates any translation that there, there's out today for the most part. In verse 38, it says that, Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The word for maidservant actually has a more poignant meaning to it. The Greek word is douli, which is a female version of doulos, which is the word that Paul used a few times to describe himself. Well, what is a doulos? Some of you know. It's actually translated in her sense, slave girl, and she says it emphatically. I am a slave girl of the Lord. Now, we're kind of taken aback by that word slave. It's certainly a blemish on our nation's history, and unfortunately it happens today around the, the globe while the world community kind of looks the other way. It's a scourge. Why is slavery so ugly, though? Well, there's a very simple reason for it. Because you're giving up your freedom, whether voluntarily or somebody enforcing it upon you, you're giving up your freedom and you're putting yourself at the mercy of another sinful human being. And there you open yourself up to abuse, neglect, and even death. That's why it's, so, it's, it's such a disgraceful thing. Now, does that change dramatically when you offer yourself as a slave to the Creator, the one who made you, the one who has your best interest in heart? Absolutely. It totally changes the picture now. Because God has adopted us. He loves us. He wants us all to be saved. What does it mean to be a servant? I've quoted this book once before. Gail Irwin wrote a book called Servanthood. And he quoted, he said this about people say, oh, I'm a servant of the Lord. People like to say that and, and, and you know, let people know that they're a servant of the Lord and they're serving. Well, Gail Irwin says this. He says, you'll know you're a servant by the way you react when somebody treats you as a servant. Think about that for a minute. You'll know you're a servant, if you're really, true, really a true servant, by the way you react when somebody treats you like a servant. Now, if you're married for any length of time, especially if you're a husband, you've probably heard this at least once or twice, do I look like your servant? I mean, especially if you're a hypothetical husband who hypothetically has left clothes on the floor a few times and your hypothetical wife has to pick them up. So you might have heard that once before. But do you realize that you're even being served today? A few hours ago, people came in and cleaned the school up and set up the desks for the children. Ushers came in and parked you into a spot and crossed you across the parking lot so that you would be safe. Uh, people set up the book table. People are watching your children right now as, as I'm speaking to you. And uh, people are preparing messages for home groups. There's a lot of servants here. There's so many servants. It's just such a blessing to me because, you know, I come up here with fear and trembling. And it's just so cool to see that the body of Christ is unified, that, that all these people are helping each other and helping that you can sit in here and hear the message. So we actually have a very high service rate to the point that many of you sitting here still have to have your applications processed because you, you want to serve somewhere. But I just want to right now, especially for those people who are serving out in the hallway or in the children's uh, ministry that are not going to hear me at 1142 
but they're going to hear me on the drive home on the CD. I just want to give a round of applause for all those people who the Lord has moved their hearts to serve. You know, it's, people serve because they want to serve God. They don't look for accolades of men, but I, I just want to show them how much we appreciate them. And what is service and what isn't service? I remember as a relatively new Christian, I didn't get what service meant. So I thought, my thought was, well, i got to do something. So I signed up for ushers and watching the children and doing something all at the same time. And I got burnt out. <laughs> but did God call me to do all those things to burn myself out, or did I do it on my own? Obviously, the answer is I did it on my own. So being a servant is, is, to God is to do something with joy, to do something happy. And I, if, people, if people feel burdened and they feel like it's just they don't want to do it, I'm just serving, but I'm just not happy doing it, I tell them then sit out for a while, take a break, because the Lord's not in it. Second Corinthians 9, uh, 6 through 7, we use that a lot when it comes to tithing. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. God loves a cheerful giver. You know, don't give grudgingly. But you know what? That could really apply to service also. I believe that God wants us to be happy when we serve. When we serve the Lord, it should be a joy. That's what serving the Lord is, is all about, is to be happy serving him. So we have to do it with the right heart. And basically, um, at this time with, with Mary, she served, she gave her heart to the Lord, she submitted herself to him, and she knew all the repercussions that would have come from that. She kind of stops asking questions here you know, regarding what was going to happen with, with the Christ. She, she's pretty much done asking questions, but, you know, there was she, no doubt in her mind she thought, well, the angel's going to leave. I'm going to start to show. People are going to think bad things about me. They're going to ostracize me. Joseph may leave me. You know, no doubt that this all came with that, that her showing as, as a pregnant woman. But she put herself at peace. She settled her heart, and she served God, and she trusted him with all those things that the coulda, woulda, shouldas that are out there. She left it at the Lord's feet. And no doubt, you know, the, the stigma was coming. But my prayer is that we would always be willing participants of the Lord, that we would use Mary as a model for us to, when God calls us to do something, to just settle our hearts and just be a servant. Part of being a servant is being at peace with what the Lord has called you to do. The shoulda, woulda, couldas, leave them at the Lord's feet.